going to go ahead and get started. Um, this, this session um, with Zev and John is winding down. Uh, it will conclude in the first week in November. And following that, T.C. Ham uh, will be here to um, do one of his usual studies from the text in the book of Genesis. I just want to preempt that with the fact that he has asked that there not be a debate on evolution. I guess I would title his talk, although he hasn't given me a title yet, This Is My Father's World. It's not the scientist's world. It's going to be a straight Genesis study. And as you know, TC is uh, always pretty energetic in that. As I discuss the ongoing uh, calendar, just a reminder, and I have already had some gracious offers for gifts to support this class. If you're looking for a way for a tax-deductible contribution, we would love to have any consideration you might give as an offering towards supporting the Westminster class, uh, John and Zev also represent Logos, and, and you can earmark it either way. We'll make sure it can be specific to them or to the class in general. With that, I'm going to ask Zev to open this morning in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Abba, in the name of your Son, the Word made flesh, Jesus our Savior, open our minds and our hearts by the anointing and guidance of your Holy Spirit to hear your Word to us, that it may guide, inform, and richly abide in us. We ask this in your holy name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Isn't it a classic fall day? Beautiful. What happened yesterday? Did the Buckeyes win? This shows you my level of... Uh, did they lose? Are you serious? Penn State beat Ohio State yesterday? Lions eight Buckeyes. No wonder everybody's so depressed. I knew something was wrong. What? What? The end times are coming. Okay, um, boy, today, what we're about to learn. Uh, he's sitting over here if you care to sit with him. <laughs> or you can come up here and get illuminated. <laughs> come on in, you're not late. Um, this is, today is so crucial. Uh, I wish as all teachers do, that we had more time, but we don't, so we're going to have to get right to the heart and essence of it. Today we are going to Joppa, which is a seaport town in Israel, and the date, we are jumping forward from where we left Peter last week, and where did we leave him last week? At Pentecost, in Jerusalem, yes. And depending on when you date that event, uh, you know, there's little variances of dating, but it's somewhere between 30 and 33 uh, AD, uh, or CE, Common Era, Year of Our Lord, 33. We're now jumping forward to about 40 AD, okay? So what the Bible does when it gives you these narratives is they tend to collapse everything, so you jump from chapter to chapter and you don't realize that quite a few years have passed. So somewhere between five to seven years have passed in Peter's life as he has this experience in the seaport city of Joppa. And today you're going to see the next stage of how the master is opening his mind and his heart. And also for us to learn that God's working in our lives is progressive, it's evolutionary, it's dynamic, it goes on and on, it doesn't stop. Peter, last week we saw what happened to him, what event took place in his life, what experience did he have? He was filled, the Bible says, 
with the Holy Spirit, completely controlled by God the Spirit, and speaking through him was God. And uh, we had an example of uh, tongues and languages even this morning right in your presence because my friend uh, Kent, Dr. Kent, brought in a Mac with all these beautiful pictures of Joppa on there, and guess what? It speaks one language, and the other device we have up here speaks another. Cables are different. We got a situation of Babel right here. Anybody have the gift of interpretation? <laughs> that would be known as an apple cord. <laughs> <laughs> My dad would love it. He, he loved corny jokes. Cornier the better. So anyways, we saw Peter give this awesome sermon. 3,000 people get converted. Now we have to go forward six, seven years and realize okay, that he's still a work in progress. This notion that just because you're filled with the Spirit on one occasion or even for a period of time doesn't mean that God's done with you. It's not a status. It's a... Experience. It, uh, what? It's an experience. And it is an ongoing experience that continues, as the scriptures say, to transform us from one stage of glory to another. We're never going to stop. So... This event that we're going to see today started at Joppa. So here's the overview. We can get rid of this because of the aforementioned problem. Dr. Kent is going to give us a little chat about what he experienced at Joppa and pass his MacBook around. Um, now realize this thing costs $6,700. So be careful. Then Zev is going to give us the history behind Joppa take us into Peter's ecstatic orama of Acts 10. What's in this ecstasy? Ecstasy. Stasis. Medical. Stasis. Standing still. Uh, stable. Uh, ecstasis. Out of stasis. It's a statement of Greek language that says you go out of yourself. You go out into another world. Peter had an ecstatic, and then the second Greek word that's used there is orama. Can you hear an English word in this? Orama. Uh, close to aura. How about pa uh, pan? Pan orama. What's a panorama? It's the big view. So what happened to Peter in Acts 10 is God took him out, him out of himself in a state of ecstasy and gave him a panoramic vision that has universal, colossal uh, impact for them and for us today. And, and Zev's going to teach you on that. And then uh, at, the, at the end, I'm going to noodle around with a couple of ideas, uh, the sign of Jonah and how this applies to us in the 21st century. So, Dr. Kent, come and tell us about your experience at Joppa. Where's the MacBook? Ah. The one advantage to not having it on the screen is that the pictures will be a little bit more, seem a little more beautiful than they would be if you walked out up there. So that's a good thing. And uh, I'll tell you what you're going to be seeing. This is a map of Israel. You can see Joppa on the lower edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we, we were on Uh, shortly after we were there, we saw uh, these Egyptian ruins which had been reconstructed because at one point uh, Joppa was taken over by the Egyptians. So uh, then Rabbi Spitzer spoke to us. We were able to walk through Joppa, through the actual streets, which was, it was incredible to think that we were walking in those same streets. and looking at actually the house of Simon the Tanner, which I think uh, we said probably really was that place because to do tanning you have to have fresh water and this was the site of the ancient fresh water well that was there historically. So, and the house uh, was under 
it was a d debate as far as who really owned it. So because of that, uh, they, you couldn't go into the house, but we were able to stand outside and look at it. It was a, Joppa was an important point, and it was a station on the ancient trade route of the Via Maris, which connected Egypt and Mesopotamia. And legend holds it that Joppa was actually founded by Japheth, son of Noah. Documentary evidence goes back 3,500 years to the time when the Egyptian pharaoh, Tutmos III, conquered the town in 1468 BC. In 2 Chronicles 2.16, it relates how Simon discussed bringing wood to Jaffa with Hiram, the king of Tyre. And of course, we've all heard the story about Jonah going down to Jaffa to find a ship going to Tarshish. We, we associate Jaffa, though, a lot with Peter and the time he spent there with Simon the Tanner. And what was just really incredible was the streets, of course, were really beautiful, and when we got to the house of Simon the Tanner, and John did his presentation uh, at that point for us, there were, if you look carefully, when you see John uh, doing, doing this presentation, you'll see little nests up above, and there were doves all over that were cooing. And it just really added to the the feeling, gosh, we're really in this place, you know. And the other place where we heard doves uh, a lot of times were when we went to the baptismal site on the Jordan River, and then doves were actually flying around there. And it seemed like, I don't know, I, I don't know of any place here in Ohio or the United States where you go and you hear doves like that just sort of nesting and cooing and being around prolifically like they were over there. So that was sort of a neat thing. Uh, at the end of this, after you see John and, and the, the different uh, sites in Joppa, you'll see it pans over into the Mediterranean Sea, and you'll see Tel Aviv, which Tel Aviv is connected to Joppa because it was founded in the early, well, it was, I think, 1909. Sixty families left Joppa because it was so crowded, and they started Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv, this gigantic new modern city, which is directly beside Jaffa, was never there until this, that part of the, uh, the 1900s. So it was amazing to see the new construction in, in that part of uh, Israel. So they were both connected. So when you see Jaffa, you also see Tel Aviv. So I think that's pretty much. It was very exciting. It was a wonderful wonderful place, and I think we all enjoyed it. So uh, we'll just pass this around. The slideshow will run continuously on this. Okay. Kent, can I get my notes back from you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Kent's already done a good job of filling in on uh, the background of Joppa, that it was a port city going back to Egyptian times. And yeah, let me, I don't really need two microphones. Uh, certainly not with my voice. Um, and certainly going back to Egyptian times, it was a port city in the time of Jonah, uh, during the ascendancy of the Assyrian Empire. It was a port city at the time of Peter and, um, and, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's been sort of bypassed with the construction of Tel Aviv today. It's sort of like a backwater, but one of the great things about backwaters is that very often they have an easier time preserving their history than the modern cities do. So one of the things about port cities, can you think of anything that would typically characterize a port city? especially with one with such an ancient history that might make it different, say, from Jerusalem. Exactly, a lot of different nationalities passing through. It would have been a very diverse population at that time. And so already what we have to see is that Peter is coming down and he is uh, here in a place 
that has a very diverse background, a population. Um, and uh, this is uh, an important thing for understanding the context of what we're about to discuss. Now, another city up the coast, which was built as a port, was the city to which Peter is going to be summoned, the city of Caesarea Maritima. And um, anybody know anything about the history of Caesarea? Who built the city of Caesarea? Herod the Great. Why did he name it Caesarea? It was in honor of his patron, Caesar Augustus. Okay, now, what kind of a city then was Caesarea Maritima? It was a port city, but it was also a Roman city. And it was at the time of the apostles and the time of Jesus, it was the headquarters and capital of Roman rule in Judea. And you have to understand that in Caesarea, in the middle of the city, was a complete Roman city with a forum, with pagan temples, including a temple to the deified Roma, the deification of the Roman state and city. There would have been a temple to the emperor. And this takes place right there. And so therefore, what does Caesarea represent to the typical Jew of first century times? Idolatry, Idolatry but also something a little more dicey. Paganism. What? Paganism. Not just paganism. Oppression, why? Foreign rule. An oppressive, foreign, occupying rule. Okay? Uh, it would be like, for example, if the Chinese, by some strange quirk of fate, were to conquer the United States and set up their headquarters and capital, say, somewhere between New York City and Washington, D.C., and Washington became kind of a backwater, imagine yourself being summoned to share a meal in a Chinese military officer's home in New Beijing, Delaware, and you are being summoned from Washington, D.C. to do that. That's about what the position Peter was being put in. But one of the things that we have to know, we noted last week what was going on between uh, Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. What was he doing with the disciples? What? He was opening the scriptures to them. He was preparing them to understand the deeper meaning of the scriptures by going through and pointing out, now, this is what this now means because of what God has done through me, and therefore enabling them to understand scriptures in an entirely new way. So what we have to realize is that what was happening to Peter in Joppa was not something unprecedented. To get an idea of how far back this goes, I want you to look at Psalm 87, 1 through 6. Psalm 87, 1 through 6. Who would like to read? Do we have a microphone? Do we have a volunteer? Psalm 87, verses 1 through 6.
Okay, what is this saying about this vision in this psalm about the future role of Zion, of Jerusalem? What is going to be said? What? The people were going to, but which people were going to be born there? Which are going to be considered born in Zion? Which peoples? What? People who acknowledge him, yes, but, you know, where do they come from? The whole, that was the whole known world at that time. Okay, the whole known world extended, essentially, from Egypt through Philistia and Tyre, and in Egypt down to Ethiopia, Cush, and all the way into Mesopotamia and Babylon. In other words... All the nations of the world are going to be considered citizens of Zion in the Messianic age. So who gets left out? Who gets excluded? Nobody. Nobody. This is an extraordinary psalm because this is taking place long before Jesus' time, and yet we are talking about a fully international people of God. All of these nations are going to be considered the children, the offspring, the citizens of Zion. Okay, this is, this is called outreach on steroids. Okay? Now, this is a theme that was not unknown to other prophets. Look at Isaiah and I want to look at two sections in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Who wants to read? Okay. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servants of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Okay. Now, do you think Jesus knew this text? Jesus certainly studied this. We are talking about one of the famous servant songs in Isaiah. And what is the role of the servant? Now, it's interesting. I sometimes have used this in sermons and saying, don't complain when you think your mission is too tough. Because what the Lord is likely to do is give you a bigger one. So uh, what, is, what is his mission going to be as the servant of the Holy One of Israel? Yeah, what was, and, and this is something we basically, it's a phrase we hear so often, a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
okay? I've got a feeling that at a certain point, Jesus may have talked about this with Peter sometime during those 40 days. But Peter may have had a little difficult time understanding just how global this mission was going to be. And then I want to look at another passage in Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. This is a brief one. And it sort of, in effect, just re-emphasizes, so I'm just going to read this myself. Okay. And the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Okay. Uh... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can you think of some place where this was quoted? When Jesus cast out the money changers and purified the temple. And what is this saying? It's saying, look, this isn't just the temple that I will have in those days will be a temple not just for Israelites, but for whom? All people who keep my covenant. Okay? So this is just, but what it does is it also brings it home to the vision of Zion. Okay? That on the vision of Zion, all the nations of the world will be accepted as worshipers of God. And then lastly, where did Peter's vision, we've been talking about this town on the coast in Israel, where did Peter have his vision? Joppa, Yafo in Hebrew. Um, Now, who else do we know in the Bible who hung out in Joppa, actually for a very brief time? Jonah, okay. So we have to go to Jonah. Now, we're not going to read the whole book of Jonah. Aren't you glad? I will just say this about the book of Jonah. Um, in the, in the uh, liturgy of the synagogue, prophetic portions are generally read as what is called the haftarah, uh, the additional reading. Uh, and they're generally read in just bits and pieces of, of, of the prophets. However, the Jonah is the one prophetic book which is read as a haftarah in its entirety. And it is the Haftarah for the afternoon of the Day of Atonement because of its message of forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness. And the honor of reading the book of Jonah is considered the highest honor one can bestow on a member of the synagogue to give them that reading. It is absolutely the highest honor. Um... Now, let us begin with the opening of the book of Jonah, and I'm looking just for chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Someone want to read? Okay. You want to read? Okay. What? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amidiah, saying, Go at once to Nevea, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with him to Tarish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay. Now, something about Nineveh. Does anybody know what Nineveh was? 
city of wickedness, but what in particular was its political situation? What was Nineveh? It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal, particularly in its relationship to Israel, that you could find. Because in 722 before the Common Era, what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? What? Excuse me? They were exiled because they, the state of Israel was conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a policy when they conquered you, they believed in forced mass deportation of the entire population. The kingdom of Israel was ethnically cleansed. That's to give you some idea of the brutality of uh, the Assyrian regime. And Jonah is a good Israelite, son of Amittai, and he is told to go where to prophesy? To Nineveh, to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So instead, he decides to go to Joppa and take a ship for where? Tarshish. Anybody know where Tarshish was? The opposite direction. So far, in fact, it was one of the farthest outposts of Philistia in southern Spain. John? Mosul. Okay. Go and prophesy to Mosul in order to save them. And instead of going to Mosul from Israel, you decide you are going to make a quick flight to Buenos Aires. Okay. Now, um, one of the key phrases here is where was he, who, what was he fleeing from? The presence of God. Now, this is interesting. We've got an interesting subtext here. How can you flee the presence of God? What was Jonah's understanding of where you found the presence of God? The presence of God was in the land of Israel only. As long as soon as you got out of there, you were away from the presence of God. He found out otherwise, didn't he? Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole story. We all know the rest of the story in terms of what happens in the rest of chapters 1 and 2. And uh, God causes a great storm to arise, and the ship is, being, is in danger of foundering, and everybody is called on to call on their respective deities, and where is Jonah? He's asleep in the hold. Okay, so they call upon him, and they cast lots. They find out that it's Jonah's fault that this storm has come upon them. And so they do what people have done to Jews in all kinds of generations. When there's a storm, they throw the Jew overboard. <laughs> and a great fish comes and swallows him, and he's in the fish for how long? Three days. And then the fish vomits him up, on the shore probably of Philistia, a little closer than Joppa would have been to Nineveh. Now imagine, he's been in this fish's belly for about three days. He's been praying like mad, but what is, you know, what shape are his clothes and his hair and skin likely to be in? Yeah, pretty much, you know. Guy coming like that and saying, in another three days the city's going to be destroyed, you just might believe him, wouldn't you? What? Something's fishy. Something's fishy, definitely. Okay. This is a big fish story. Yes, indeed. Okay. Now, he gets his call renewed. And so now I, you really, this is where we really have to read three and four, pretty much in their totality. Okay. So I'd like us to take turns reading this. I'll start off. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, and would someone like to read what the proclamation of the king of Nineveh was throughout the end of verse 9. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce and anger so that we will not perish. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a certain amount of slight humor there about seeing animals dressed in sackcloth. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What did he want to happen to the Ninevites? He wanted to see them obliterated. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The last thing in the world that Jonah wanted was for his mission to succeed. The last thing in the world. But I mean, can you just hear this? I know you're a God who forgives. That's the kind of God you are. That's why I didn't want to do what you told me to do. Okay. Then God asks him a wonderful question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, Jonah doesn't answer him, so God arranges a lesson. Jonah camps outside the city, and God causes a gourd to grow to provide shade for him. And Jonah is so glad. This is so much nicer, you know, under the hot sun and the hot wind to have this gourd tree giving you shade. And then in the next night, God causes a worm to kill the gourd, and it withers and so Jonah is exposed to the hot wind and to the uh, sun, hot sun beating down. And Jonah again prays to God. And we're now in chapter 4. And he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. How many of us have ever felt that way? Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And I love this. And he said, it is right for me to be angry even enough to die. You know, I love that histrionics in there. And here is someone who would like to read the last two verses of the book of Jonah. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nivea has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Wow. 
Okay. So what's the lesson that Jonah's being given? God cares about dumb people. God cares about people. God cares not just about... Okay, let me tell you what really kind of this strikes me as. Last Tuesday, John and I went to hear Barbara Turkeltaub, who is the last Holocaust, living Holocaust survivor in the city of Canton. And as she was talking about her experiences, John and I were both struck most deeply by one part of her narrative. When she heard her mother and the other mothers in the, in the, in the uh, Vilna ghetto praying, Eli, Eli, lama azavtani, the opening of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what really brought this home to me, what I learned on that, what I got out of that, is people often ask, where was God in the Holocaust? But what that enabled me to see is, yes, Jesus was there. He was there with his people, in their suffering, in their dying, and on their behalf. But one thing that I have in my experience in the course, about six months after I became a Christian, I had a dream in which I was an SS concentration camp guard on trial for war crimes. And when I woke up, my reaction was not, oh my God, what have I done? But God help me when I can only identify with the victims and not with the killers. Yes, Jesus was there on behalf of his people but he was also there on behalf of the people who were torturing and killing them. And that's a pretty hard vision to wrap yourself around, but that's the vision we have to have as Christians. Now, uh, we're running out of time, so I need to go quickly. Um, The setting, what brought Jesus to Joppa was a case of a young woman named Tabitha or Dorcas who had died. And people asked Peter to come and do what for her? Raise her from the dead. Oh. Now what does that remind you of? The resurrection of Jesus, yes. Okay, so we have, in a sense, a replay of Jesus' resurrection taking place in this international port city of Joppa. Do you begin to get the idea of how God is working on Peter? Now, let's take a look at the actual vision. We're in Acts 10, 1 to 20. Well, not Acts 10, 1 to, we'll just get the vision. So it's Acts 10, if I can find it among my myriad bookmarks. Okay, hold on, no, 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 no. Acts 10. Yeah, 9 through four, um, 16. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, 
the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Okay, so Cornelius has also had a vision to send for Peter because his prayers have, be, have been acceptable, accepted by God and he's to send for a man called Peter staying at the house of Simon the Tanner and um, Peter has this vision. Yes, it is an ecstatic vision. He fell into a trance and he had a vision. Who else would have ecstatic visions in the past in Israel? Not just John. In Israel's past, whose job was it to have ecstatic visions? What? Well, not just Ezekiel. What? Not just Daniel. Prophets, yes. Okay, this is how prophecy works. So what do we know about Peter from this experience? He was a prophet. He was having a prophetic vision. Now, to get some idea of what the vision was telling him to do, you got to consider the place of the dietary laws in terms of personal and social and political, okay? Personally, okay, it was really tough to keep the dietary laws because when it came to meat, and these were animals in there, when it came to meat, the first thing you had to do is only certain species were permitted among land animals. It had to have both a split hoof and it had to chew its cud. Among things that would have been prohibited are things like predators who have paws. And above all, things like reptiles and insects. Okay, the word for creeping thing, sherets, is sort of like an archetypal term for something radically unclean. The term for insect, shekets, gets turned in Yiddish into shagets, a totally sort of worthless person, or its feminine form, shiksa. You know, you need to realize when someone calls a Gentile woman a shiksa, that's an insult. That's an insult. Okay. Now, once you have a kosher species, the second thing is, it has to be slaughtered in a rich, in the ritually correct manner. If not, it's a carcass. It's a, just considered a dead body and is one of the archetypes of impurity. And then, you know, if that's not hard enough, then you get to worry about the whole issue of mixing meat and milk. Now, that's the ceremonial challenge here. He's saying to Peter, showing him in this vision of all kinds of land animals, including reptiles and insects and predators and God knows what all, and saying, get up, kill and eat. Now, we don't know whether Peter was a licensed shohate, slaughterer, but the implication is he was going to go and kill these unkosher animals in an unkosher manner and eat them. Totally, you know, reversal. Ethnically, when you get all of these dietary restrictions put together, what did that mean about Jews and Gentiles generally in terms of their association? They couldn't eat together. They couldn't share a meal. And above all, Jews could not be guests for a meal in a Gentile home. And in fact, the rabbis understood that this was in fact explicitly one of the purposes of the dietary laws, to cut off the possibility of common table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. And then there's the political thing. He's about to get an invitation to come to the house of a centurion, a Roman officer in the Roman occupational headquarters, Caesarea Philippi. And that's what Peter had to put up with. And so let's see 
what happens? What is Peter's response? Let's go to chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. Chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death to hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you want to go on? Yes. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone for, forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, he was at the house of Cornelius and he gave this sermon. And by the way, that introduction, he is Lord of all, all what? All peoples. All peoples. Okay? He is Lord of all. He is not just Lord of the Jewish people. Okay? And then what happens? What do these Gentiles in the household of Cornelius experience? Okay, just like just like Pentecost, they have their own private they have their own Pentecost experience. Exactly the same as befell Peter and the other apostles. What is he supposed to do except, okay, let's baptize him. You know, may not be strictly according to rule, you know, in terms of modern church discipline. I mean, what, you get the Holy Spirit before baptism? That doesn't make sense. But yeah. And then, very key thing, he stays with them a few days. What's he doing? He's eating and drinking in the house of a Roman centurion. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to John to wrap things up for us. Am I on? Okay, so this was part one, and next week will be part two, <laughs> which is cool. <clears throat> now, here's your assignment, uh, because this is really so important. It's worth spending the extra time on it. So for next week, you'll read Acts 10, 
and 11. Very important. Because this is when Peter has to then go back to the Jewish people and answer the question, what? Who knows? What? What? You went into an Italian's house? You ate sausage and uh, scallops? Unclean, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sausage and (laughs) So then Peter has to explain to his fellow, and they're not just Jews. They're, They're Jews ethnically, but they're also believers in Jesus the Messiah. So you're now reading this big, epic, transitional era when Peter and the rest of the apostles are beginning to have this revelation that Jesus is not just for... What did you learn today? In fact, God's been trying to teach the Jewish people for how long that God, Yahweh, Hashem, the God of Israel is not just for Jewish people. He's trying to teach Jonah that. And Jonah is like, what? I want these people to be exterminated off the face of the earth. Isn't that amazing that some, you would say that to God? Have, don't raise your hand. Has anyone ever said that in your heart? I would like to see this area of the world turned into a sandlot of nuclear glass. That's Jonah. And in fact, that's kind of the funniest line in the whole Bible, I think, is that one we just read. It's at the end of um, Acts 10, and it says, well, then they concluded that God has granted repentance even unto the goyim. Do you hear the tone there? When you, God's even, God is even going to grant repentance to the Italians? What do you hear there? They're like, what? I mean, we're Jews. We're, we're, the, we're it. We're God's people. And now God's telling them what? Well, yeah, you are, but guess what? So are the Italians, and so are the um, Chinese, and uh, everybody, Greeks. Oh, man, Revelation, boom. So you read that, and then you'll hop over, this is where it gets even stickier, to Acts 15. Because from here to here is, yeah, about another seven, eight years. This whole thing took a long time for everybody to work out, and I want you to see that. This doesn't happen overnight, this transformation, this radical Revolution of how God views people. Okay, so you have one minute left. Tell me, what's the big idea that you learned today? What did you learn about God? Universal love for all people. As Peter said when he walked into that house, this is a dawning revelation for Peter. Do you remember what he said? I now get it. I now see. I now perceive God does not, and your translation doesn't capture the, like the ethnic Hebrew. It, it, it says he doesn't show favoritism. Did you read that? In, in the Greek, it says God doesn't look at a person's face. God doesn't make recognition of a person's face. Now, this is funny because you know human beings. This is one of our most acute ways of social recognition. and The mind can recognize faces very, really good. And now we're developing software that can study a person's face even more acutely than a human eye. And you can put that into a computer and it is an absolute identifier of who you are as a person. And now God says, what to us? When I look at you, I don't see your face. What's your face stand for? Your face. Your identity or your outward identity, who you present to the world, God says, I don't even see that. What do I see? I see what's going on inside. Now just think about that as an apostolic revelation. What would happen to us this week, this world, if God put that in our hearts and we started looking at people and we were literally set free from looking at their 
Well, you can still look at their face and enjoy it. But when you're looking at their face, God's giving you the gift what? To see what? Their heart, their person, their real being in there, not their color, their ethnicity, their uh, political party, or any of that stuff. So this is what we're learning from God, that God loves all people that way. So next week, Acts 10, 11, and 15, and we'll go into the fullness of what God was teaching them. So let's pray together, and thank you for coming. What an amazing God you are that you would make us in such diversity and then come and tell us that you love each one of us. And here we are, Lord, limping along in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, still carrying the weight of ethnic prejudice and racism, and here you are, 2,000 years later, announcing to the whole world that Jesus is Lord of all, and there is no distinction any longer between any of the ethnic groups, and you're looking at our hearts, and we ask for your grace through the Holy Spirit that we would be set free, and we would live this way in joy and love each other in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right.